as Jesus was on the cross, he was mocked, as you know, by the religious leaders, the criminals that were crucified, one on his left and one on his right. They mocked him. Uh, the centurions that nailed him to the cross uh, were abusive to him from the moment he was betrayed and arrested to the time of interrogation. And as he was on the cross, one thing stood out particular, particularly to me, and it was this. They said, if you are the son of God, come down from there. If you are truly the son of God, why are you being nailed to the cross and enduring it? But Jesus did not come down. He endured the pain of the cross. We'll be reminded of that as we observe communion at the end of our service today. But it's so important in this message that I've entitled, Christians Cannot Come Down. Jesus didn't come down off that cross. He endured the suffering, looking to you as the joy set before him. He saw us, his church, those that would be forgiven of their sins and have a right relationship with God. He endured such things. I wonder how many of you are enduring difficulties today. I wonder how many of you are struggling with something very, very difficult. I'm hoping that by the end of our time this morning, the short brief time that we have this Sunday morning, that whatever it is that is trying to bring you down, to cause you to sink, that you would be encouraged and you would be lifted out of whatever quicksand you might, or might we even say spiritual quicksand that you may have fallen into this morning. Now, there are some of you parents and married couples and individuals that are extremely discouraged. It's hard not to be when you look at the pressures of this world. And maybe you're contemplating just quitting it all. There's some of you here today that need to be reminded that the Lord has called you to do something very important with your life. Something very important, not just with you individually, but if you're married in your marriage, if you have children and a family in your family, and that you shouldn't stop being who God's called you to be. There are some of you here today, and you know often it's not talked about in church, but there, that you're battling depression or loneliness or just feeling down. And you need to be encouraged today to not let the enemy take you down. Because the only time, and some people think it's just for pastors, but it's for the Christian. But some would say, oh, you know, uh, you know, the enemy only messes with, you know, those that are in church leadership. Well, no, it's true that he does, but it's not limited to just those in church leadership. It's for anyone naming the name of Christ. Meaning that if you've put your faith in Jesus today, that Satan is after you. And the only time that, en that the enemy will stop attacking you or your family or your calling is when you're dead. That's it. When you're deceased, and until you're deceased, Satan's goal is for you to desist in your service to the Lord, to stop. So deceased or desist, either or, or both. Stop doing what God's called you to do. And the passage of scripture that we'll be looking at this morning, I prayed, would minister to you as I know that it's ministered to me. In verse one of Nehemiah chapter six, it says, now it happened, as you guys know, and in case you don't, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after it was completely destroyed. And he's doing a great work. But it says that, after, that it happened that when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, this is Nehemiah writing, 
When they heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono. But it says that they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, he says in verse three, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Why should my work stop? See, the enemy went after Nehemiah because if he could get Nehemiah, he could get the people that Nehemiah influenced or the people that Nehemiah led. If he can get the leader, he can get the follower. And so the enemy would seek to harass Nehemiah, seeking to instill fear in him and to ultimately get him to quit following after the Lord or to stop doing what God had called him to do. You know, the attacks of the enemy are often like a terrible song that you get stuck in your head and it just keeps playing over and over and over again. But each of you here today, you've endured afflictions. You've endured trials. You've endured spiritual attacks. And you would think that, you know, I've kind of walked through some pretty heavy things and, you know, maybe finally the enemy would say, you know, this guy's not budging or he's not quitting. I'm going to give him a little bit of rest. But no, no, no. That's not the case at all. See, the only time that the devil would ever seek to give you rest is if you were to step out of the center of God's perfect will for your life. Because then he has you exactly where he wants you to be, in a place of disobedience, a place of denying the calling of God upon your life, not fulfilling your role as a husband or a wife or as a mom or as a dad or as a man or as a woman. The enemy doesn't move on from you. He doesn't move on from your marriage. He doesn't move on from your children. Satan will attack you before you get started. He'll attack you halfway through, and he'll attack you when you're at the end. He'll attack you after you've completed what God has called you to complete. You know, we've heard of Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, but the list didn't stop there, for Nehemiah writes about what I, if you would note, it says, and I quote, the rest of my enemies, end of quote. So he has the main perpetrators, the main bad guys, if you will, but then he says, and the rest of my enemies. Sir Winston Churchill said this, and I quote, you have enemies? Good. That means you have stood up for something sometime in your life, end of quote. You have enemies? Wow, that means you actually stood for something. Especially nowadays when nobody wants to stand for anything because if I stand for something, especially that's righteous, I'm going to receive the reprisals. So it's better just to take a step back, throw my hands up, not say anything, not do anything, but what a waste of a life. But for each of you, that have heeded the call to serve the Lord, you have stood up for the things of the Lord. You've said, here I am, Lord. Send me. And so I ask you this morning, as followers of Jesus in this secular, worldly, evil, wicked day and age that we live in, will you honor the call of God upon your life? Will you 
continue to lead your family. Bless your marriage. Train up your children and serve the Lord with all of your hearts. It's been devastating to me how the enemy can ruin or take a lifetime of service and walking with the Lord and ruin it at the end of one. I've seen it in, in front of my very eyes. People that had reputations in not just the church and in ministry as pastors, but families that were known to serve the Lord. Married couples that you aspired to be like. Falling by the wayside. For you younger people here today, pay attention that enemy would like to ruin a lifetime before it even begins. By making bad choices, choosing to do things that dishonor the Lord. Those of you that are established and maybe you've kind of, you know, gotten through your growing pains and you're in a solid place in your life today, the enemy would like to ruin the blessings of God behind you and rob you of the blessings of God ahead of you. You know, we read of Nehemiah that his enemies, <laughs> all of them, had heard that he had rebuilt the wall. He had done what God had called him to do. See, it fascinates me when I read of Nehemiah's enemies catching wind of his work for the Lord. It's fascinating to me. The enemy knows that Nehemiah is accomplishing his job. The enemy knows, and let's put it on a personal level, the enemy knows when I, when Garrett, is doing what God has called me to do. And the same goes for you. But I've wondered about this, and I think this might hit our audience in different ways, and I think that that's good. It's supposed to. But I wonder what's more important. Being known in Christian circles, having an appearance of being this godly man or a woman, or if we truly, truly are in such a way that we're known in the camp of the enemy. I wonder where you are at today. Are you known by the enemy? Are you known as that man or that woman that stands for righteousness, that loves the Lord, that is not afraid to proclaim the truth? Or are you known only by church people? And you have an appearance of being like Christ and you speak Christianese fluently and you know the songs that we sing. I wonder where we're at today. I would present to you, and this might be some food for thought, but I would present to you today that it's more important to be known spiritually in the enemy's camp than to be known in Christian circles. Because especially where we live, in this region of the United States, and obviously in different pockets of the country, there's the same type of thing. But here, in Southern California, in Orange County, how we might know of the popular churches and we know the pastors and we listen to the podcasts and we got the music playing on our streaming provider or whatever it might be and we, we know kind of the vibe of Christianity, if you will. But our hearts are far from the Lord. We're compromised. We've been watered down. The salt has lost its flavor. The light has been diminished. 
But again, I present to you something for you to think about, that it is more important to be known by your enemy than to be known in what cultural Christianity might say you might, you might be or who you are. And I provide Acts 19, verses 13 through 15 as case in point. It says this, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So there were these religious people who had the appearance of being leaders in their religious community, and they decided to try to exorcise a demon in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they said, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they heard of Paul the apostle, and they heard of Jesus, but they did not know him personally. And listen to this. In verse 14 of Acts 19, it says, also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And listen to this, blows my mind. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus we know, Paul I know, but who are you? There are a lot of individuals that fall under the category, or let's just say the umbrella, because it's pretty big, of well-known Christian this or that, but they're really the furthest thing from impacting the kingdom of darkness as they could be. There are a lot of people in the church that are known by church leadership. They're known by the pastor. They go over to their house. They hang out. They know the songs. They know everything. But they're the furthest thing from where they should be in the spiritual realm. In many cases, it would seem that they're doing more for the enemy than they are for the Lord because they don't hold fast to sound doctrine. They don't know Jesus personally. A lot of churches are inflated in their numbers where there are people that go to church every single day, but they don't know the Lord. And the rest of the story from Acts 19, we pick up in verse 16, it says, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified because they thought, you better know Jesus. You better know him personally. These guys were leaders in the religious community. As I mentioned, they were sons of a, of, a, of a chief priest. And they said, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Like, I have this third-hand, you know, vicarious relationship with God through Paul and Jesus, and we exercise you by them. Doesn't work that way. This really struck me because I thought, okay, well, the evil that's in this world the spiritual warfare that's taking place behind the scenes, the evil spirit says, we know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. Who are you? That should, in a righteous way, scare you a little bit. And cause you to ask yourself this question. Am I living a life in such a way that it glorifies the Lord and that I'm known in the enemy's camp? 
If we're not working for the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit, we will, like the men we read of, the seven sons of Sceva, run in fear and wounded and be exposed for the compromised professing Christians we are. If you're looking at pornography, if you're sliding into DMs that you ought not to be in, you're being deceived. But also the flip side is for you to understand this. If you're being tempted in areas of sin, that means that something in your flesh is enticed and the enemy would seek to exploit it. However, your savior would seek to give you strength as you conquer it. Each time you say no to the lust of the flesh, each time you resist the devil, you become stronger because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is known by the enemy. Paul was known by the enemy. What about us here today? Because sooner or later, the word will get out about who you are, what you're called to do, and what you're doing in service unto the Lord. It was just last week, one of our house group leaders said, you know, I've never experienced such spiritual attack leading up to the first time I've ever hosted a house group. I said, welcome to the club, buddy. Welcome to the club. You're doing something effective. And the enemy knows it. But don't be intimidated by that. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The word does get out about you sooner or later, like it was for the prophet Elisha. I like to read from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 12. This is the backdrop. The enemies of Israel, particularly in this particular passage, were from Syria. And the king of Syria was strategically trying to attack the people of God, but Elisha kept foiling all of those plans because he received wisdom from the Lord. I'll read it to you because it's way better than me paraphrasing it. It says, now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. But then it says in verse nine, and the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. It means it kept happening over and over again. Over and over again. Every time the king of Syria said, we will attack here, the people of Israel were in the opposite direction. And he's thinking to himself, and rightfully so, what are the chances of this? In verse 11, it says, therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Who is our mole? Who's the spy? Every single time we try to attack Israel, they're not there. And then get this. And one of the king's servants said, none, my lord. There are no spies, O king, but Elisha. Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. How about that? He knows everything. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thrilled 
at the thought of foiling the enemy's plans to destroy our children. When we have a church that rises up to stand in the face of evil, I'm thrilled about that. I'm thrilled at the thought of baffling the enemies of the Lord through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, through the men and women that God has called to lead in such a time as this. Sooner or later, the word gets out. That man's on fire for the Lord. He needs to be stopped. That woman is on fire for the Lord. She needs to be shut down. That family represents Christ as Christ should love the church and the church submits to Christ. That family needs to be eradicated. That person finds that their identity is in Christ, not in what they do or what they look like or how much money they have or where they live or what they own. That person is a danger to the secular society of the world. They don't have a consumer mentality. They're like Jesus. They say it's greater to serve than to be served. It's greater to give than to receive. They need to be stopped. And so it says again back in our text this morning, Nehemiah 6 verse 1, our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. If you're doing what's right today, the enemies heard about it. You're loving your wife, you're loving your husband, you're training up your children in the way that they should go. You're a student on a campus where everything's against you and you're shining as a light, you're staying strong. The enemies heard about you. And they come and they say, come down. Nehemiah, come down. We need to go meet. But it says that he knew that they thought to do him harm. And so in verse three of Nehemiah six, he says, so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Can I ask you just a few questions, actually a little more than a few, five. You don't need to raise your hand, but I'm gonna ask you to be honest as you answer these questions in your own heart. How many of you deal with a lot of stress every single day? You don't need to raise your hand. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family. How many of you, secondly, deal with feeling lonely or isolated or without any real friends? Thirdly, how many of you have dealt with the strain of how to deal with politics correctly? Because I've seen it inside the church, it's been very, very divisive. Very divisive. You go back to COVID and it was you wearing masks or not wearing masks. Families were divided, churches were divided. You getting vaccinated or you not getting vaccinated, churches and families were divided. Politics, churches and families are divided. Fourthly, how many of you have experienced Family problems, personal problems, or marital problems, or attacks, or challenges because of your decision to honor the Lord. And then fifthly, how many of you have felt, maybe even this morning, like you've just had it? You're thrown in the towel. You're gonna quit. There are a lot of pressures that you face. There are a lot of things that we wrestle with. And it doesn't mean that you're, a less, that you're less of a Christian if you answered yes to one or 
all or some of those questions that I asked you. There's a lot of stress for those that are in the church, followers of Jesus. There's a lot of things that we have never had to really wrestle with before and we're having to deal with them on a daily basis. Even the way that the church is viewed. David Barna released this interesting survey on the role of the church and as the church seems to be going through some sifting, let's just call it, that the church needs to help youth, believe it or not, navigate screen time with their kids to help the youth understand the balance between real life and screen time life. That the church also needs help to help with navigating injustices. What is a genuine versus what is a perceived injustice and how does that pertain to Christianity? It also said, number three in the top five things that a church needs to be involved with or that should be or the perception that it needs to be involved with is helping address loneliness and anxiety which has gone through the roof in the last two years. Fourthly, which we know should be a part of every church, that the church needs to help in discipling and spiritual growth. And then lastly, of these five things that David Barna put out about the church was that there needs to be a reframing for outreach and evangelism. How do I reach my community? How do I reach my neighbor? How do I share the gospel? The challenges are very, very real. You deal with problems, you deal with pain and discouragement, depression, finances, impossible situations and the like. And it is difficult to process all of those things that you're engaged in day in and day out. I mean, we can you know, sweep it under the rug and just say, hey man, that's called real life. That's what we have to deal with. We're grownups. Yeah, we understand that. And you gotta do what you gotta do. But you also have to understand that there is a time that sooner or later you will have to process those things. You know, our family members are attacked. Our spouse, our children, people that we're close to. Because the enemy is always plotting, always attacking the work that is being done for the Lord. And the enemy will do nothing but try to get you to come down from the place that he, that the Lord has raised you to. He lifted you up out of sin. He lifted you up out of, the Bible talks about it, the miry clay, the quicksand. Everything that was bringing you down, the weights of sin, causing you to sink, the Lord has lifted you up out of those things and the devil wants you to sink back down. Discouragement, the fear of man, what other people think of you, this is a huge thing. Well, what will they think? Maybe it's the fear of failure, like what if I try and I don't succeed and people think I'm a loser? I mentioned anxiety, I mentioned Depression, I mentioned problems, but what about comparison? I'm comparing, you know, my family to their family, you know, God's blessings in my life and God's blessings in their lives and what's good for them and what's good for me. And, you know, I have this constant turmoil as I look at those next to me and I have this perceived understanding of what their life might be like and how come theirs seems better than mine. 
listen, anything that the devil can do, anything that he can employ to get your eyes off of the Lord, to get your eyes off of the end zone, if you will, the finish line, to get you distracted from fulfilling your work, he will employ anything he can. He wants you to quit what God's called you to do. He wants you to hinder the work that God is doing in your life and through your life. But did you notice in our passage in Nehemiah how the enemy wanted to meet with Nehemiah? Hey, I want to meet, you. I want to meet with you. I want you to stop doing what you're doing. I want you to come down from the wall that you're building and let's you and I spend some time together. Why? Why would the enemy want to meet with Nehemiah? Let me ask you today, why would the enemy want to meet with you? To give you a good time? No, I'll tell you why. It's so that he can discourage you in your work and ultimately destroy you as he wanted to discourage Nehemiah in his work and ultimately destroy him. So this begs the question, do you meet with the enemy in your thoughts by entertaining the fiery darts of the wicked one? You think upon those things that are not of the Lord. You entertain those thoughts. You believe the lies of the wicked one because the word of God you have not hidden in your heart that you might not sin against him because you don't know what God's word says. And so you're meeting with the enemy. I wonder how many of you this morning have found yourself not realizing that you're meeting with the enemy when you mess around and sin. The enemy always seeks to do you harm, always. It might look nice and shiny and pleasurable. The end result is always to harm you. Sin is pleasurable for a moment, but it leads to death. So how about this? Living in Orange County, distraction. Hey, look what's happening over there. Discouragement. Look what's happening over here. Discontentment. Look what's happening over there. Destruction. Oh, you should have kept your eyes focused on your work, on your calling, on your marriage, on your family, and on your relationship with the Lord. You were distracted. I would like to highlight for you Nehemiah's response to his enemies. The first thing that he says is, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing a great work. What God has called you to do is a great work because it is the Lord's work. And the Lord's work is great regardless of how successful you may appear to be doing. Regardless of how successful you may appear to be. Because I'll tell you, when you're struggling, it doesn't feel like the Lord's doing a great work, does it? When you're discouraged, it doesn't feel like it's a great work that the Lord's doing in my marriage and in my family. When you're lonely, it doesn't feel like a great work. When you're not seeing the results and when you can't seem to catch a break, it doesn't feel like you're a part of a great work. You're just part of a great struggle. Every day, the same thing over and over again. See, those great works are taking place in somebody else's life. The great work of the Lord is for sure taking place in their family, not ours. 
And I remember, you know, Pastor Chuck, my pastor growing up, shared a great story and he talked about how when his church started that he was very discouraged. Very discouraged, because it hits pastors too. He shared that for 17 years before Calvary Chapel became what Calvary Chapel is known as around the world, that for 17 years, and I quote, that he was in the ministry and was extremely discouraged that nothing effective had come from his ministry, end of quote. Low attendance. It's nothing quite like opening up your Sunday morning service and saying good morning and welcome. It's great to see both of you here today, mom and dad. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And you know, maybe a simple word of encouragement for you today would be that the work of the Lord that he's called you to be involved with is a great work, regardless of who may acknowledge it. Who may appreciate it? And you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. If Satan cannot get you with disobedience, he will try to get you with discouragement. And Satan, important to note, Satan does not discourage those who are not about their father's business. So when you begin to realize that you need to draw upon the faithfulness of the Lord in your past to encourage you in the future. You'll realize that God has a perfect track record and he's walked with you every step of the way. You have the word of God that's living and powerful. In 2 Peter 1.19 it says, we have a more sure word of, po- of prophecy. Whereunto you, where you, you do well if you take heed as a light that shines in the dark place and until the day dawns and the day star arises in your hearts. The sure word of prophecy is the word of God. Through the darkness of this world, the word of God is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. What you're doing unto the Lord is important. You're a part of the great work that the Lord said, I've begun in you. I am doing in your marriage. I'm doing in your family. I'm doing in your circle of influence. But the second thing Nehemiah emphatically says, he says, I can't come down. So number one, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Did you know that this pair of words, come down, in the Hebrew language can actually be translated to sink? I will not sink. So Nehemiah acknowledges that the work that the Lord is doing is a great work because it's the Lord's work. But he says, I cannot, I will not, I have the ability, I have the strength to prevail or overcome so that I am not sunk, so that I don't sink down with these things that the enemy is throwing at me. Now, it's been no secret since the beginning of this church that I've shared things with you on a personal level with some of the things that we wrestle with. And in particular, it was with, my, with, with Ava, you know, some of the challenges that she has as a special needs kid. 
I really didn't understand that, you know, months ago, the Lord would even be preparing this Sunday morning's message for you today. I didn't understand at the time that the Lord would be using one of the most difficult situations in my life to bring me to a place where I understood who he was in a much deeper way. And honestly, in full disclosure, I wish that I could understand the Lord in a deeper way without having to go through difficulties. Jesus was a man of sorrows, it says in the word of God, acquainted with grief. And often, we as followers of Jesus are as well. And we learn not only to be acquainted with grief, but what to do with it once we meet. Exhaustion and grief are such powerful tools in the hand of the enemy to work in the flesh, but they're even more powerful in the hands of my heavenly Father to work in my spirit. You know, for some reason, it's between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. that Ava is awake almost every single night. And she's upset, and she's often in pain, and she can't communicate, and that's a very, very hard thing as a dad, where you feel incapable of helping your little girl. And I'm not up here trying to play my violin. I'm just being real with you with what the Lord has encouraged me with. And I remember just not too long ago, I was sitting at the top of my stairs in that window of the early morning, and I was tired, and I was praying to the Lord for help, and I had these feelings of sorrow. I had some anger too and some frustration as if God wasn't hearing my prayers. But guess what? All along he was listening and he was working. And the Lord revealed something to me through a prayer that he put on my heart to pray and that prayer was very simple and it was very short and it went like this and I'll share it to, with you in just a second but I wanna preface, you remember when the disciples said to Jesus, they asked Jesus, said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? I feel like this was something that the Lord put on my heart. And that short little prayer went like this, Lord, show me the path to walk upon that I might glorify you in the most difficult of situations. Show me, Lord, because this is hard. In family life, in your own personal life, there are so many things trying to bring you down, to lower you, to cause you to sink down. But with the power of the living God, at work in your life, you, me, we have the ability to refuse to be brought down by any circumstance, regardless of how difficult or painful it may be. And that ability comes from the Lord. And I've come to realize that every valley of shadow and death has a path of righteousness upon which you can walk. But that path is hidden from physical perception. It's spiritually discerned and its paving stones, if you will, are comprised of the word of God illuminating each step. Lord, show me the path upon which I might walk that I may glorify you even in the most difficult of situations. And then thirdly, he says, the work ceases if I sink down. And that's it. And this is where we'll close today. It comes down to coming down. That's it. How does the coming down work in the life of the Christian? Well, depression brings you down. 
Distraction brings you down. Discontentment brings you down. Of course, disobedience brings you down. The work ceasing and your destruction is the last part of you coming down. There's some of you parents or married couples, individuals here today, you're just starting out. You're charging ahead. Please beware of comparison. Beware of looking at other people and what they're doing so that you're not focused on what God's called you to do. This happened with the disciples in John 21, verses 21 through 22. Peter looked over at one of the disciples and said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this guy? What about him? And Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. There will always be someone doing something better than you or someone doing more than you or having the appearance of having a better life than you. Now listen, it's great to learn from others. It's important to grow and improve. And of course, we want to be like iron sharpening iron. We want to glean from other people. But when it comes to the point where we're discouraged because our life doesn't look like someone else's life, watch out. You do what God has called you to do and leave them to do what God's called them to do. There are some of you here today, you're in the middle. You're not starting out, but you're established. Beware of exhaustion. In Hebrews 12, verse three, it says, for consider him, it's Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Years ago, I couldn't believe that the parents of people that I had gone to elementary school with and middle school and high school and even college, after we had graduated, their parents got divorced. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you just raised your 20-something-year-old children to walk away from the Lord? What happened? They didn't want to handle things the right way. And the reason for that, and we understand it, is because sometimes handling things the right way takes a lot more effort than handling things the wrong way. At the time of great illness and being near death, King Hezekiah, one of the, the greatest kings, cried out to the Lord in Isaiah 38, verse three. He said, remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and I have done what is good in your sight. And it says that Hezekiah wept bitterly as his time had come to die. So for those of you that are established, might I just say for the sake of all the young people that you don't even realize that look up to you, do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Don't cut corners. Don't forsake the truths of the scriptures when it comes to even practical things because we need you to keep going strong. We need you to keep blazing the trail so that we can follow in your footsteps. The devil doesn't care if you've been married 25 years, 30 years, 35, 40 years. He can try to ruin your life in the middle of it, at the end of it, or before it even starts. But may it be for you as Hezekiah, where he looks back on his life and he says these three things. I have walked before the Lord in truth. My heart has been loyal to him and I have done what was good in his sight. And there are some of you here today at the end 
You're passing the baton, so to speak. You have a legacy, but beware of letting your guard down when you think the work is complete, my job is done. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul writes, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. There are a lot of disqualifications taking place right now. A lot. A lot. People that you would never would have thought of. Please, you guys, finish strong, stay strong. We all need you to do so. In 2 Timothy 2.5, it says, and also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the rules are this, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. We're seeing how in an instant, an entire reputation can vanish. Don't allow that to happen. You that have gone before us, you're the pillars upon which future generations stand upon. It may seem today as if the Lord's not hearing your prayers, he's not seeing your plight, but listen to me. As the Lord spoke to me, I hope this encourages you. He is very, very much aware of what's happening. And he is very much at work in your life and through the trial that you're currently in. The reality is, though, we don't often see it. The temptation is, because I don't see it, then I really don't believe that it's actually happening. But Jesus said in John 20, verse 29, from the New Living Translation, he said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And that's called faith. Believing in something substantively that you can't see yet. Honor the Lord with your decisions. You will find that if you do so as time goes by, that because the word of the Lord endures forever, so will the lasting righteous effect of your decisions and actions be. In the long run, it goes well for the righteous, it goes very poorly for the wicked, so hold fast. I would even say white knuckle it to your faith. Hold fast to a good conscience. The work that the Lord is doing in your life is a great work. The work that the Lord is allowing you to participate in is also a great work. It's his work in you and then it's his work through you. Christians can't come down from that high calling. We can't tone it down, water it down. We can't come down. We can't allow anything to cause us to sink. Don't allow anything that the wicked one may throw at you cause you to sink down. It may hurt. It may be discouraging, granted, but you have the power of the Holy Spirit enabling you each day to not be overcome by those things. You actually don't have to sink down. And guess what? If you don't sink down and you don't disobey the Lord, and you don't get distracted, then the great work that the Lord is doing in you and in your marriage and doing in your family and doing in your life, it will not cease. 
Jesus didn't come down from the cross. They said, if you're truly God's son, come down. Forgiveness is made possible because he did not come down. That's what we'll observe today in just a moment. I'd like to invite the men that are gonna be distributing communion to make their way to the front of the stage and the band could come out as well. But Jesus didn't come down from that cross. Nehemiah said, I'm not coming down to you. You're the enemy. You want to do me harm. The work I'm doing is a great work. I will not come down and the work will not cease. And so I hope that you find it in your hearts today to have a little bit of righteous attitude. No way. I'm not coming down. I am not lowering my guard. I am not stopping the work that God wants me to be a part of. I am not doing it. No way. Lord, show me the path upon which I may walk that I might glorify you even in the most difficult of trials that I might be in. Whatever I might be in, Lord, show me. Show me, Lord, because there is a path of righteousness that walks me through the valley of shadow and death. And so I'd invite you to be resolved in your own heart. To be reminded of the great love of the Lord for you. And the work that he's begun in you, he's faithful to complete. And all of that is made possible by what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so I'm going to invite you to please close your eyes and bow your head. We're going to pray. And we're going to ask the Lord just to speak to us. The men will distribute communion to you. There's a cup there where it has juice on the bottom and the top layer has a wafer. I'm gonna ask that you would refrain from participating in communion until we've all received a cup and then I will lead you guys as a church family in taking communion together. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to forgive us of our sins. And Lord, we ask that we would walk worthy of that high calling that you have upon our lives. Lord, if there's any soul searching that we need to do this moment, if we have unconfessed sin in our lives, may we confess it to you, finding that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Lord, I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Help us to be the men and women that you've created us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.